It's TechBiter Worldwide. I'm Bill Blinn with an hour's worth of technology news in about 20 minutes. That's because we leave out the sports, most of the jingles, the weather, and the commercials. Podcast number 190 for May 2nd, recorded April 30th, 2010. Every time you install another add-on in Firefox, you make it just a little more bloated and a little bit more slow. For that reason, it's important to pick your add-ons carefully. There are thousands of them. Add-ons are one of Firefox's best features because they allow you to create a browser with the features you want. Although they slow the startup process and make Firefox consume more memory, selecting the best add-ons will save your time, not cost your time. Now that I'm running Firefox on a 64-bit operating system, startup time is no longer an issue for me. You haven't heard me complain about Firefox being slow to start up in several months now, have you? Well, that's why. Throw enough CPU speed and enough RAM at a problem, and the problem will fade into the background. So I thought I would share with you the three add-ons that you might want to consider. The first really isn't an add-on. It's just a new search engine. Within reach of my right hand, I have the American Heritage Dictionary and Webster's Ninth New Collegiate Dictionary. Within reach of my left hand, there's the Oxford Canadian Dictionary, the Cambridge Dictionary, and the American Heritage Dictionary. I open any one of these books rarely these days. Some of them, in fact, haven't been touched in years. That's because most of the time what I need can be found by a quick trip to onelook.com or by using Google's define function. Until a year or so ago, I had a CD-based dictionary installed, but I decided that was no longer essential, and it's no longer on the machine. Now you can add a dictionary to the search function in Firefox, and it'll give you access to the Merriam-Webster online site. And by the way, you'll find a lot of cheap Webster dictionaries in stores, but these are invariably substandard works. Webster is no longer a trademark. It has had no real meaning for decades. The real thing carries the name Merriam-Webster. So how does Merriam-Webster make money on this? Well, there are ads, of course, on the site. But if you need to look up a word quickly, it's a good way to do it. As much as I like Barbara and David Mickelson's Snopes.com website, some recent changes have made it impossible to select text from the site. The Mickelsons probably preferred that those who cite the site provide a link rather than copying the text. But sometimes I want to cite their research, with attribution, of course, in an article I'm writing. The solution has always been to reveal the page source and do the copy from there. The problem with this is that the resulting text contains a lot of HTML coding, and I need to remove that. Right-to-click is an add-on that overrides the site's JavaScript and makes it possible to select the underlying text. But if you use this and you copy something to quote it, remember to give attribution. By default, when you type text into a password element on a web form, what you see is bullet characters. That's fine if somebody's looking over your shoulder, but that's not the case most of the time. So if you misspell your password, you'll be refused entry. Of course, you can just do it again. But wouldn't it be nice to be able to see what you're typing in the password field? You can. Just download Unhide Passwords and install the add-on. Instead of seeing bullets, you'll see, in rather faint type, your password. So even if somebody is looking over your shoulder, unless they're really close, 
they're not going to be able to read the password anyway. I use your mailing list provider to create the weekly TechBiter Worldwide newsletter. When I log on, I can see my password, and this eliminates situations in which I commit a typo and then find that my login has been rejected. This is also a useful feature when you're signing up for a site and you're required to enter the same password twice. Being able to see what you're doing is helpful, and the fact that the add-on makes the visible password faint still keeps those nasty shoulder surfers from causing trouble. I have mentioned fake antivirus warnings before. They're now being seen as an increasingly important threat. Here's what happens. You're using a browser, and without warning, an alert pops up. It suggests that your computer is infected and encourages you to click a link to fix the problem. It may even look like your antivirus program. Chances are your computer wasn't infected, but if you click that link, it probably will be. Google has conducted a year-long research project that concludes this is a significant threat. Google could have saved a lot of money if they had just asked me. I would have told them, yes, this is a really serious threat, and I wouldn't have needed a year to figure it out. The thieves who run operations that create fake pop-up warnings are interested in getting their hands on your money, not in repairing any problems with your computer. Google says that the spread of fake antivirus products takes advantage of users' fear that their computer is vulnerable, as well as their desire to take the proper corrective action. Visiting a malicious or compromised website, or sometimes even just viewing a malicious ad, can produce an authentic-looking screen that warns of dire consequences if you ignore it. Google recommends running only antivirus and anti-spyware products from trusted companies. Google says that you should also be sure to use the latest versions of the software, and if the scan detects any suspicious programs or applications, remove them immediately. My recommendation would add this. If you encounter a pop-up message that warns of an infection while using a browser, shut the system down immediately. Click nothing. When you restart the computer, run your existing antivirus program to search for rogue files. The most important point here is click nothing. Even clicking what appears to be a close option can inadvertently give the application permission to install its malware. Even in the old days, the camera never lies was wrong. By choosing the right lens and an appropriate vantage point, it was easy to distort reality. The Soviets were known for photo compositions that removed disgraced leaders from their positions on Lenin's tomb for those May Day parades. Leverenti Beria, for example, there one year, gone the next. But if you wanted to lie with a camera, you did need some knowledge of optics and perhaps the ability to use an airbrush. Today, it's a lot easier. Remember the picture of John Kerry and Jane Fonda at a peace rally during the Vietnam War? Great expose, except for one thing. The image was fabricated from two separate images. University of California Berkeley professor of journalism ethics Ken Light photographed Kerry at an anti-war rally in Mineola, New York in 1971. Kerry was preparing to give a speech at the rally. Fonda? She wasn't there. The fake photo was circulated with an associated press attribution, and many people still think the image is realistic. Now, University of Albany computer science professor has received a National Science Foundation grant for his project to develop tools that might help detect fakes such as this. 
computer science professor Sui Liu received a five-year, $500,000 award that recognizes his accomplishments and the potential based on a project titled A New Statistical Framework for Natural Images with Applications in Vision. Liu examines a mathematics-based language to describe images and build models to more effectively capture statistical properties of natural images and thereby to identify fakes. The project studies natural image statistics and their applications in fields such as computational neuroscience, image processing, computer vision, and graphics. Liu says the project is based on a simple nonlinear transform that is statistically justified and biologically inspired that provides a new language to describe image signals and forms the basis to build statistical models to more effectively capture statistical properties of natural image. <laughs> Simple to him, perhaps. This is more like magic to me because digital duplicity can be extremely difficult to spot. The project attempts to apply natural image statistics to the forensic analysis of digital images. Professor Liu says this will facilitate forensic practitioners in criminal investigations, and it will contribute to national security and public safety. One important part of Professor Liu's project will be to develop tools that detect doctored images and expose image forgeries that have become increasingly prevalent. These doctored images challenge the status of photographs as definitive records of events, especially when images are presented as documentary or legal evidence. Professor Liu has been involved in several research projects related to forensic authentication and analysis of digital images. Liu will pursue collaborations with forensic investigators at the New York State Police Department Forensic Investigation Unit to apply some of the techniques in digital image forensics to practical criminal investigations. In short, and this is my opinion, of course, this project deserves to be pursued. I am delighted to see a project like this get started. It's easy and becoming easier for anyone who has access to an application such as Photoshop to make realistic images that have no basis whatsoever in reality. In short circuits, rumored for many days, the deal between HP and Palm was announced this week. The computer giant plans to purchase the fading smartphone provider for approximately $1.2 billion. HP sees significant value in some of Palm's technology, both the hardware and the Palm WebOS operating system for use in devices that will compete with Apple's iPad. HP says the combination will enhance its ability to participate more aggressively in the fast-growing, highly profitable smartphone and connected mobile device markets. Next time you buy a phone, remember that highly profitable part when you hand over your credit card. Palm's operating system will allow HP to sell portable devices that can multitask so that various applications can concurrently stay up to date. Under the terms of the merger agreement, Palm stockholders will receive $5.70 in cash for each share of Palm common stock when the deal closes. This transaction is expected to close during HP's third fiscal quarter, which ends on July 31st. Remember the storm worm? Perhaps you thought it was gone, but not so. Computer Associates, now known as CA, says that the worm is back, although in this iteration it seems not to be particularly widespread, at least not yet, or particularly dangerous, at least not yet. The worm comes to you as part of a Trojan downloader with a Win32 fake antivirus or rogue antivirus malware. It does send out a lot of spam, though, which is probably how the user is monetizing the service. The spams generally deal with adult dating sites and online pharmacies.
CA's Ricardo Robielos performed the research and says that this variant communicates to the spam bot server via a website command. The server then sends to the worm the information that is to be included in the spams, and the infected computer starts sending the spams to any address it can find on the computer. Storm was responsible for creating a huge botnet starting in 2007, but it was largely eliminated when the primary command and control site was shut down. Additionally, Microsoft's malicious software removal tool cleared the air on more than a quarter of a million PCs. If you'd like additional information on Storm from CA, there's a link to their site from the TechBiter Worldwide website. If you'd like faster internet connections, I have a suggestion for you. Move to Asia. If you don't want to move to Asia to obtain the best internet access speeds, then try Berkeley, California, Stanford, California, or Chapel Hill, North Carolina. Those are the three U.S. cities with the fastest speeds, according to acceleration specialist Akami. In a report issued this week, Japan leads the rest of the world. Of the 100 cities with the best speeds, 48 are in Japan, another 14 are elsewhere in Asia. In the U.S., 31 states increased their overall Internet speeds in the final quarter of 2009. South Dakota's gain was the greatest percentage-wise, 18%, but that increase only went up to 4.5 megabits per second. The District of Columbia and 19 other states saw overall rates drop. The sharpest drop was in Virginia, but Akami says that that might be because of increased mobile Internet use. Mobile connections are slower than wired connections, so that could draw down the average. Akami monitors nearly 500 million IP connections, about 40% of those in the U.S. and China. On a country-by-country basis, the best Internet speeds are in South Korea, Hong Kong, and Japan. Hong Kong is included as a country, even though it is now a part of China. All exceeded 7.5 megabits as the average speed. These are also countries with dense populations in cities, which makes creating the infrastructure easier than in places like Montana or North Dakota. And a final word this week. Last week's program was brief and without a podcast because one of our cats was ill. He has since died. I had been distracted by that most of the week, and the final diagnosis on Saturday required a five-hour stay at MedVet. During that horrible week, I found the Internet to be useful in dealing with the immediate medical problem and with the grief. If you have never owned a pet, it may be difficult to understand how much like family members pets are. It was particularly so with Tangerine, who tricked my wife and younger daughter into bringing him home ten years ago so that he could adopt me. I have owned many cats but they all stayed with me simply because I fed and housed them. Tangerine was different. He was a constant companion for reasons of his own. When it became clear that he had some sort of medical problem two weeks ago Sunday, I did some research on the Internet. The research was unsuccessful, but it was clear that he needed quick attention, so I called the cat doctor on Monday morning and my wife took him in. The initial diagnosis was grim, but an additional test was recommended, and that couldn't be done until Saturday. During the week, I used email and Facebook to communicate with friends. Fearing the best, I began writing a eulogy of sorts, mainly as something to focus my attention on and to keep my head from exploding. The result of the Saturday test was a definitive bad diagnosis, and again, I turned to the Internet to perform some research. Well, today, Tangerine is no more. 
The point is that in a time of crisis, some of the Internet's resources can be called on to provide information and sometimes solace. If you'd like to read more about Tangerine, I have a link to his story from the TechBiter Worldwide website. One correspondent suggested that those of us who enjoy cats, if we are lucky enough, will find one the cat during our lifetimes, a cat that transcends the barrier between species. For me, Tangerine was definitely the singular the cat. Over the years, I've been associated with a lot of cats, and when they died, I missed them. Occasionally, there was one that left me with a deeper sense of sadness. But Tangerine's death left me with a profound sense of loss, simply because that relationship between cat and person was significantly different than the usual person-cat relationship. So, farewell, my friend. You will be missed. You will also be remembered, vividly, for a long, long time. Thanks for listening to TechBiter Worldwide, the podcast with an hour's worth of technology news in about 20 minutes. I'm Bill Blinn. Check out the website, www.techbiter.com. And if you like, send me an email from there. Thanks. Bye-bye.